Good morning, Bethel Church. It's great to be with you this morning and my privilege to open up God's Word for us here today. And for the sermon today, I'd like to address a significant theological question today, a question that most of us, perhaps all of us, have have at some point wondered about. It's a question that is a stumbling block often to people believing in God. It's a question that sometimes causes doubts about God's existence. It influences people often to move towards believing agnosticism or even atheism. And the question is this, why can't I visibly see God? I mean, if God is real, why doesn't he just plainly and visibly show himself to me? If God really exists, why is he not on display for all the world to see? It just makes sense that God would show himself, doesn't it? I mean, if I was God, I would certainly reveal myself to the world. I would simply, by simply appearing in the sky or by thundering my voice out over the world. Or I would, at times, show up to direct human history away from wickedness or appear to bless people who are righteous. It just makes sense, doesn't it? God would do that, but He's not doing that. We can't look up and see God shining clearly in the sky. We don't hear His audible voice speaking to mankind. We don't see overt supernatural miracles happening all the time, like the parting of the Red Sea or a plane is crashing, all of a sudden hit the ground and just stops and is gently let down? Why doesn't God reveal himself in this way? Why doesn't he visibly show himself? Theologians call this the invisibility of God. God is real and he is present, but he is not, but he is invisible to our eyes. He is hidden. He is unseen. And we know that God is hidden or unseen by his own choice. Clearly, God could plainly reveal himself to us if he so chose, didn't he? But, but he clearly chooses not to. Why? Well, in answering this question, we first have to realize that throughout history, God has often chosen to show himself visibly to uh, people in various ways. He's been much more visible in the past. Consider all the way back to Adam and Eve. God was undoubtedly clear to them in the garden. They had back and forth conversations with him. Or to Abraham and Jacob, God visibly and audibly appeared to these individuals. Or, of course, to Moses. God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. And on the top of Mount Sinai, or later Exodus records in chapter 33, verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. He's often appeared to the nation of Israel. So think of all the the ways throughout the Old Testament that God showed himself to the nation of Israel in miraculous ways, by the plagues that he brought upon Egypt, by parting of the Red Sea, or this example in Exodus 13, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. He's appeared to the leaders of Israel as a group. God showed himself plainly to a group of leaders here in Exodus 24. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the leaders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. God's shown himself clearly to the prophet Isaiah. Several times Isaiah has visions of God. For example, Isaiah 6, in the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Of course, God was most fully revealed in Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus was the perfect manifestation of God who appeared visibly and walked among the people. He talked with them. He ate with them. He felt pain with them. 
God in the flesh, plainly revealed for all to see. There are some ways, certainly in the past, that God has visibly and plainly revealed himself to mankind. And God is certainly not finished revealing himself in this way. Jesus will be undeniably visible to all mankind in the future. He will be and is the most visible representation of God that we will someday see. Revelation speaks to this in chapter 2, and it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Or similarly, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. There will be a time the whole world will see God and Christ in unparalleled clarity. He will be undeniable, visibly, and audibly heard by all. That day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because the full revelation of God will be undeniable, as undeniable as the sun in the sky or the sound of booming thunder in a massive storm. But that point is not yet here. At this point in time, God is hidden. He is unseen. Why? I mean, wouldn't it just greatly strengthen your faith if you could just look up and see him? If you could just look up in the sky and you could see Jesus Christ sitting on a throne, orbiting through the sky like the sun. We just look up and see him there whenever we wanted. If that was the case, I'm pretty confident that we would design our worship auditoriums with massive skylights. And we time our worship service just at the point when Christ would orbit above us and we could look up and sing our praise songs and look up and see him directly. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that make our faith so much easier, so much stronger? But because God is presently unseen, this seems to put us at a faith disadvantage. It might at times cause us to doubt our faith. Is God really real? Wonder why. Wouldn't God want his people to have the strongest faith possible? I have one big overarching answer to this question, followed by two more specific answers. So one big summary truth, and then two more truths that flow from that bigger one that will hopefully, to a large degree, answer this question for us today. So first, the big overarching truth. Why is God visually unseen? Now, we need to remember that whenever we ask questions like this that are asking about the motivator or the value behind something, why God does something, whenever we ask, why God did you do this? So why does God create mankind? Or why, why does God permit suffering? Or why has God given us his word? Or why does God expect of us obedience? Or why is God presently visually unseen to us? All these why questions, they all have the same primary answer. Every one of them. See, God does everything ultimately for his own glory. God's glory is the ultimate motivator behind all that he does. Or to say it another way, God's supreme concern is for his glory. God's supreme concern is for his glory. We we find this in many passages. For example, take Ezekiel 36, verse 22, when it says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. 
So here's the context of this verse. God is promising to bring about restoration to the people of Israel. He is going, they're in exile, they are suffering, they are far from him. And so God describes in Ezekiel 36 here that he's going to restore the people of Israel first as a, as a cohesive nation and also then as a people unto himself. But here in verse 22, God is saying, this incredible restorative work I'm going to do for you, Israel, I'm doing it first and foremost, not for you, but for myself. I'm doing it ultimately for my glory and for my fame. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. It is for my sake. It is for the sake of my holy name. It is for the sake of my reputation among the nations. It is for my own sake that I'm doing these things, says the Lord. It's not for your sake, O Israel. It's not for your prosperity or for your comfort that I'm about to act. It's not for your happiness that I will restore you. I am ultimately doing this for my sake not for yours. And so we need to ask, remember that whenever we ask the question, why, why would God do blank? God always asks first, acts first and foremost for his own glory. God's supreme concern is for his glory. He restores a wayward people unto himself, not for their sake, but for the sake of his own glory. Another example of this, Roman, Isaiah chapter 48, when he says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God always asks first and foremost for his own glory. Now it's not popular to have a view like this today. Society's common conception of God is that he is nothing more than a big fuzzball of love. That God blesses us first and foremost for our own benefit. He blesses us because he loves us. And this love then compels us, compels God to want to bless us. And it's certainly true that love is a motivating factor in God's heart. It is a motivation for him. But God's love is not his only motivation. In fact, it's not his ultimate motivation. God's glory is his ultimate motivation. And so... Passages like these clearly teach that God is ultimately motivated, not by love, but by a zealous concern for his own glory. He's first and foremost bent on magnifying his name. And so when we ask the question, why is God presently unseen, we realize it must be advantageous to God's glory to be unseen for this season of time. Somehow God knows that it is serve his glory if for this period of redemptive history he is not visually seen. It serves his glory right now to be hidden. Now that's the big overarching answer to this question, but I realize it is perhaps somewhat insufficient. And you want more detail, you want more understanding of this. So let me get more specific. So aside from this big fact that God is doing everything for his glory, why is God more specifically visually unseen in today's world? Why is God visibly unseen in today's world? And here now I have two answers to this question, two more specific answers. The first is this. God wants his people to have a genuine faith. He wants his people to have a genuine and a greater faith. We all agree that it takes more faith to believe in something that is unseen than to believe in something that is obvious to everybody. I mean, that's the basic definition of faith, isn't it? To believe in something that is not proven or not obvious to everyone. It doesn't take faith to believe that grass is green. We just all know grass is green. It takes no faith to believe that. Or that the Chicago Cubs won the World Series this year. Those are facts that are undeniable to everyone, right? 
But it certainly took faith to believe that the Cubs would win the World Series before they had done so. They had a hundred years of, more than a hundred years of failure after all. Before they were revealed as world champions, faith was required to believe that the Cubs would be champions. But now that they've been revealed as such, faith is no longer required. It's just a basic fact. And so faith is, by definition, belief in something that is unseen. And here's how the Bible itself defines faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is believing in something that we cannot see, or believing in something that is not blatantly obvious to everybody. Or another definition, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So here Paul states how a believer's identity, in part, it is defined by a personal confidence in things that are unseen, things that are invisible, things that are not described in the nightly news, things you can't read about in the textbooks. God clearly wants us to have this kind of faith in Him. He wants us to believe in Him while He is yet unseen and not obvious to everybody. And this is because belief in unseen things, it is, it is a more significant, genuine belief. It's a more significant faith. Consider this point in Romans chapter 8 when it says, For this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This passage is extolling the virtue and the goodness and the greatness of faith and hope in things that are not seen. There is a virtue to choosing to believe something that is not yet seen or obvious to everybody. And there is glory in that. And there's a certain victory that comes as well when that hope is then proven correct. So when you believe that the Cubs would win the World Series, uh, there's a certain virtue to that belief. But then when the Cubs were revealed to be winners, an explosion of joy and of praise came from that patient faith. I was right. I knew it. Finally. The thing I have hoped for so long to see has finally happened. Or another example. I have great confidence in my wife's ability to do some amazing things. We just recently, for example, took our three kids on a trip to Disney World. Now, I call it a trip, not a vacation. (laughs) Because we absolutely returned more exhausted than when we left. And, of course, when you take three kids on a trip to Florida, there's a massive amount of work that needs to be done getting all of that ready. And I had great faith in my wife and her ability to do all the, so much of the planning and the packing that was needed. I knew she could handle it, even though at times she was often somewhat stressed by it. But you know what? She nailed it. And she prepared for our trip so very well, and it went off so smoothly. And as the fruits of her work and preparation was revealed, I celebrated it, and I still do. It is to her glory that I believe that she could do these great things even before she did them. And that is how God is glorified, by requiring faith from his people. God relishes in the faith that people express in him. He delights in the confidence that people show, believers show in him, even though everything is not yet revealed, even everything is not yet obvious. And Peter wrote about the virtue of Believing in God while he was yet unseen in chapter 1 of his book, 1 Peter, when he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 
There's a joy that comes to God's heart when people believe in him before he is fully revealed. Just like joy comes to my children's heart when I express confidence in their ability to do something that is not yet proven. So when I say to my kids, hey, I know you can win that game. I know you can, I'm confident you can pass that test. I'm certain you'll do fantastic at your recital. There's a joy that comes to my kids when I express that confidence in them. And God wants his people to express that kind of faith in him. And this requires him to be visibly hidden for a time. Until then, when he is fully revealed, that faith will then be joyfully consummated. Until that point, though, God wants his people to have a greater faith. And this is the first reason why God remains visibly unseen. He wants his people to have this genuine, great faith. It would be impossible if he was just obvious to all. That's the first reason. Let me transition now to the second The second reason, we all know that one of the consequences of God being unseen is that many people then therefore disbelieve in him. Many people doubt God's existence, disbelieve in in God's existence because they cannot visibly see him. And this results in two types of people generally in the world, those who believe in God and those who do not. God must have a purpose for allowing this kind of contrast of these two groups of people. If God God didn't want this contrast to exist, he would be visibly seen in the sky. And everybody would believe in his existence, just like everybody believes that the grass is green. But by being hidden, humanity is now divided into those who believe and those who do not. This is one of the consequences that comes from God's hiding himself so that he's not visibly obvious. It makes disbelieving in God to a degree rationally defensible. And people can say, well, I don't believe in God because I don't see him. And then they come up with alternative theories to explain their reality like naturalistic evolution and such. You see, when people disbelieve in God, they still have to provide answers that explain some basic questions like where do we come from and how did the universe come to exist and what happens when I die? By being visually unseen, God has created a world now where naturalistic theories of origins and evolution, they are convincing to some people because they need some answers. They can't believe that God is real because they can't see him. Such theories, they also become even more convincing to people because of the nature even of this world and the earth that God has created. Most unbelieving scientists believe that the earth is, for example, millions and millions of years old. And this belief allows them then to determine and come up with alternative theories of origins, like evolutionary theory. Now, based on the testimony of God's Word, we here at Bethel would teach very strongly against teachings or beliefs that would say that mankind evolved from apes, that life originated on its own or over a long period of time without any sort of divine guidance or creation. But most everyone, the Christians often vehemently debate the age of the earth. And some think it's millions and millions of years old, as scientists claim. Others think that it's very, very young, perhaps only 8,000 years old or something like that. Because, but, but those people who believe the earth is very young, they say, well, it at least has the appearance of age. Christians often vehemently debate this. But I'm not going to dig in, thankfully, to this sticky matter. This is something that I'm going to leave to our senior pastor to handle someday. It's one of the privileges of being an associate pastor. But most everybody agrees that to a point, the earth does at least appear to be very old. Perhaps it's because God is a young earth, but God created it with the appearance of age, or perhaps it really is very, very old. In either case, the appearance of the earth is one of the things that allows God to remain hidden. You see, if we could Prove that the earth was only 8,000 years old, that would be an almost undeniable proof of God's existence. 
Because how else could you explain that we got here in the first place? Naturalistic evolution requires millions upon millions of years to work. And if the earth was proven to be only 8,000 years old, all secular theories of the origin of life would be destroyed. And it becomes no longer rational to say that God doesn't exist. And so one way that God hides himself, conceals himself, is by creating a world where it, to a degree it makes sense to disbelieve in him. And this enables the world to have this great contrast of those who believe and those who do not. Now, why would God do this, though? It's not just so that people have a certain type of faith, belief in the thing that is unseen, which is great. I think there's another reason. The answer to the second reason why God is presently unseen is this. God is showing how terrible life is without him. He is showing how terrible life is without him. You see, when a large portion of the world disbelieves in God because they cannot see Him and prove Him, they even come up with alternative theories to explain important questions, and the world begins to drift away from God. People go off and they live their own lives apart from Him, and this is the general condition of the world today, isn't it? And I think we can all agree it is not going well. The world is full of much pain and suffering. Sin runs rampant as people harm each other. They injure each other. They cause pain towards one another. And this is what happens in a godless reality. Sin takes over because that is our basic nature. And when sin takes over, pain and suffering result. Consider how Paul described this reality in Romans chapter 1 when he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, since they did not see fit to acknowledge that God existed, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So this passage describes the incredible pain that comes when people deny God and when they fail to acknowledge Him. It says, because they did not see fit to acknowledge God, because they denied God, the Lord said, okay, you're not going to acknowledge me? Then, Then go ahead and feel the full consequences of a wicked life apart from me. And the text goes on to describe all sorts of suffering that come to people as they engage in sin. They experience murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They do evil. They suffer for it. They injure each other through gossip and slander and foolish, ruthless actions. Why did all this happen? It happened because they did not see fit to acknowledge God. So God is visually unseen, and this one consequence is that people deny Him, and then they face the consequences of sin and the despair of a life without God. And as that happens, you know what it does? It shows to humanity our need for a Savior. God is visually unseen so that we see how terrible life is without Him. So that ultimately we turn to Him and we say, we need you. Rescue us from this world that denies you. God permits this contrast to exist in the world so that people realize their need for God and that then they turn to Him by faith. And all of this greatly glorifies God. I realize this is a bit complex, so let me illustrate it in this way. Consider this story. 
There once was a father who had four beautiful children. Now, due to unusual circumstances no one expected, this father found himself raising his four children on his own. He was a kind and generous man who deeply loved his children. All who knew him saw the obvious affection that he had for his kids. Yet he was a firm parent. He taught his children well. He expected obedience, and they were wonderfully behaved, in large part because of the tremendous respect that they had for their dad. He was also a man of great wealth. Through his abundant means, he provided a luxurious lifestyle for his children. They lived in a large, modern estate far off in the countryside. Acres and acres of land were at their disposal for riding horses or for playing in the woods. And the father provided for their every need. They were abundantly well-fed. They had private tutors to help them learn. They, took, they went on lavish vacations to see the grandeur of the world. He was a doting father who began every day cooking a special breakfast for his family. And he ended every day by tucking each of his four children into bed, one by one. As they entered their teenage years, you think they would have resisted this ritual. But the children cherished their father, and they always delighted to be in his care. Yet one day, the father decided that his children needed some important perspective. You see, they had never been in want, and they had quite unwittingly come to take for granted the father's care over them. So one night, after the children were all tucked into bed and fast asleep, the father snuck quietly up into the attic. And there he remained, waiting to see what would happen. As the sun rose, the children stirred and rustled in their beds, but as they awoke, they immediately knew something was awry. The usual smells of coffee, along with bacon or eggs and pancakes, was nowhere to be found, nor was the sounds of their father whistling in the kitchen as he prepared their morning meal. The house was eerily silent. It seemed dead. And they cautiously tiptoed downstairs together. They looked around, wondering where their father had gone. They searched high and low, looking in every room, every closet for their dad. But it never once occurred to them to look in the attic. After an exhausting search, the older two decided to take things into their own hands. They attempted to cook up the usual breakfast, but it was a disaster. For a moment, they were dismayed. They missed the blessings that their father provided to them. But then it dawned on them. They were in the home, alone. They could do whatever they wanted. And almost immediately, their apprehension wore off, and the house turned into a party. They made great messes. They watched whatever they wanted. They played whatever games they wanted. They ate junk food all day, laughing, having the time of their lives. All the while, the father waited patiently, listening in the attic. But soon, the fun began to wear off. Without their father's firm guidance, the children began to bicker and fight. They started to yell and scream. They treated one another with unkindness and deceit. At moments, they got along fine, and at other times, they were at each other's throats. And as dinner drew near, they all secretly tired of ice cream and chocolate. They wanted something more, but they lacked the wisdom to cook for themselves. Hearing their complaints from the attic, the father turned on his phone and quietly ordered pizza delivery all with the kids' favorite toppings. And when the pizza arrived, the delivery person explained that it was paid for by an anonymous donor. The children wondered for a moment who that could be, but in their hunger, they quickly devoured the pizza without a second thought. And they did whatever seemed fun to them deep into the night, experiencing great fivrality intermeshed with conflict and strife. But as their eyelids grew heavy, genuine tears of sadness emerged. They were exhausted. They missed their father. They had no one to tuck them in. Eventually, they collapsed into their beds without even thinking to brush their teeth. 
And when they were all fast asleep, the father snuck down from the attic. He tidied up some things that he knew they would never notice. And he quietly snuck into each of their rooms, kissed them on the forehead goodnight. And then he returned to his hiding spot in the attic. The next morning, the children arose, and their father was again nowhere to be found. But the wonder and joy of the previous day had worn off. Now they were fearful of another day trying to fend for themselves. They knew there would be much fighting and pain as they lacked the father's wise temperance to keep their behavior in line. At night, the pizza once again came. And again, they put themselves to bed. This time, a deep sense of sadness and despair washed over them. Where was their father? For three more days, this cycle repeated. And the home became a miserable place to live. It was a complete disaster. The house was a wreck. No one got along. They all tired of pizza and cereal. And the freedom that they once enjoyed had become a heavy weight. All the while, the father washed it all. And eventually he decided he had endured enough. In the midday hour, while the children sat like zombies watching TV, he snuck down from the attic. He came up quietly behind them. Here I am, he said tenderly. The children turned around. Their faces initially displayed shock of fear, but then almost as quickly turned into shouts of joy and admiration. In an instant, they rose to their feet and rushed to their father. They wrapped themselves around them, and he embraced them all at once in his large, strong arms. Tears of joy combined with a myriad of questions filled the air. When the initial shock had settled down, finally the father could answer the most pressing question. Where did you go? Nowhere, the father replied. I was with you the entire time, only unseen in the attic. Tell me, where did you think that I had gone? We had no idea. You just vanished without a trace, the children answered. Really, the father said? Did you not notice that the house was tidy up every night as you slept? Or how the fridge was restocked with fresh milk every morning? Or that pizza miraculously appeared each night, every time with your favorite toppings? I never left you, but I wanted you to learn how much having a father means to you. I wanted you to see how very much you need my care. And now that I have appeared, I know that you will never forget this lesson. For the rest of our lives, you will always remember these few days that I was hiding in the attic. And the memory of my absence will cause you to appreciate my abundant blessings all the more. End of story. Now, did you get the point? There is a difficult, painful season of redemptive history that we are in right now. And God is visually unseen for a time to demonstrate truly how terrible this world is without him and that this world needs a savior. And he is hidden for a time so that people understand that what life without God is like. And then they cry out to him for help. And he reaches out and he rescues and saves them. He receives great glory when all of this happens. But be encouraged. This period of time when God is unseen, it is only temporary. Imagine the incredible out pouring of praise in the future when God does reveal himself visibly and undeniably for all. Imagine the worship that will ensue from God's people. 
It will be many, many, many times greater than the excitement we saw when the Cubs won the World Series. All of God's people will finally declare, finally the thing we have hoped for, it is here. And imagine the glory that God will receive in that moment. And finally, though this temporary season is difficult, it causes doubts, it is a challenge sometimes to our faith, it is ultimately equipping us for eternity of worship. Because one thing that will fuel our worship for eternity is our memories of a fallen and broken world. When we see God visibly in the new heavens and the new earth, we will remember how bad things were in the world when God was not visibly seen. We'll remember what life was like living in a godless world that chased after sin. We'll remember how terrible life was in a world that did not see God. But that will help us see him in that moment more clearly and how beautiful and how wonderful life is with him. As the bitterness of this life will help us appreciate the glories of the next life all the more. And that understanding will fuel our worship for eternity. So these are two specific reasons why God is presently visibly unseen. He wants his people to have a greater faith, a more earnest, genuine faith than something unseen. And he is showing how terrible life is without him, ultimately so that people realize their need for a Savior all of which is purpose to bring great glory and honor to him. Now, I've been careful in the sermon to say that God himself is presently unseen. Because although God himself is not visibly seen by everyone in this world, the fingerprints of God are everywhere. Everywhere you look, you see impressions and signs of God. Although he himself is visibly hidden, manifestations of his glory in person are on display throughout all of creation. There are visible glories of the unseen God all around us. And though we do not see God directly, we have ample ways to see him indirectly. Or another way to say it is this. Although God is not visibly seen, his glory is easily seen by those who have faith to see it. Although God is not visibly seen, his glory is easily seen by those who have faith to see it. Billy Graham once famously said, I've never seen the wind. I've seen the effects of the wind, but I've never seen the wind. We don't see God himself visibly yet, but we see his working everywhere we look. And God has given us incredible revelation of himself, which should make it abundantly clear that God is real, that he exists, that we can believe, and that we can trust in him. So let me share with you three ways that God shows himself to mankind, three ways that God can be visibly seen. The first is in the pages of Scripture. God has revealed himself through the specific revelation of the Bible. The Bible goes to length to speak about God and who he is. Every page, every paragraph contains uh, descriptions about God and the truth of his existence. God has spoken through this book, and as you read it, as you study it, You see how remarkable this book really is. You realize it must truly have a divine origin. There's simply so much unity and clarity and depth here for this to be authored by men. And the pages contain, of course, the most accurate accounts of Christ himself, who is the most clear and full revelation of God to date. And just as we read the Gospels about Christ, you see then God fully on display in the pages of this book. The glories of God are very clearly seen in the pages of Scripture. And God's glories are also very clearly seen in the wonder of creation. In the wonder of creation. Consider Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Even though God is presently unseen, creation itself declares that God exists and that he is real. Just look carefully at our world and you must conclude that God truly does exist. The analogy is often given of a watch. 
Imagine if you were out for a walk one day and you looked down on the sidewalk and the path and you saw a watch. Now, you would naturally reason that that watch was created by someone. This would be especially true if you examined all the intricate parts and gears that form it. You wouldn't think it just kind of hopped out of nowhere that it somehow came together on its own. No, you would reason that the watch was itself. It testifies that somewhere there is a watch creator. And even though you don't see the creator, you know he exists because there is no other way to explain the existence of the watch. And as you study the watch, you reason that this creator is great, has great intelligence, incredible skill. He must have acted very intentionally to put this watch together. It was carefully, intelligently designed. There is no other way to explain the watch's existence. And friends, when you examine this created world, from the intricacies of the human body to the incredible balance and symmetry of nature itself, from the amazing precision with which the molecular world functions to the incredible greatness and vastness of the universe itself, creation testifies, it screams, there is a designer and a creator to all of it. So let me illustrate this with a few images. Look at this image right here, put up on the screen. It's a watch. Now look at this image. Is this created or accidental? Well, it's obviously created, isn't it? It's hard to reason otherwise. Or another picture. This car, is this created or it just kind of accidentally happened? Clearly, intentionally designed, intentionally created. Another image. The Eiffel Tower. Accidental or intentionally created? Think of the logic you're using to make your conclusion. Or another image. Space station. Created or accidental? How about another image? This is the rotunda in the U.S. Capitol. Is this created or accidental? Now think of the logic you're using to come up with your conclusion. And now look at this image. Apply the same logic. Created or accidental? What did you use to think that those other things were created and not accidents? Well, how about this? Use the same logic, created or accidental. How about this image here? Well, go back for a second. All right, this this is a painting, created or accidental. Now, how is this image different from this? The surface of Jupiter. Or what about this image? Fiber optics. Now, how is that different from this? Wisps of a feather. Or another image? A microchip, clearly created. Now, how is that different from this? A snowflake. Or, how about this? These are rows of houses, clearly created. How is that different from this? That's a close-up of broccoli. You never knew it, did you? Or, how about this? That's a fractal, a mathematic equation. How is that different from this? Human irons. Or, this? Interesting-looking, clumsy robot. Now, how is that different from this? That's my daughter at one. Now, applying the same logic to all of these images would lead you to the same conclusion for each. All were carefully designed and intentionally made by a creator. And if mankind in all of our efforts can at our best create a clumsy robot, imagine how much greater the creator of this universe must be to create a human body like mine or like yours with all of his intricacies, with his immense capabilities, a staggering complexity. That demonstrates incredible creative power. And truly, I only think you need to look at images like this or an image like this or another image here of our world an image like this of our sky, or a final image like this of a sunset, 
to conclude that there is a creator behind it all. The heavens declare the glory of God. Indeed, they do. And all of, te- all of creation testifies to existence, from, his de- from the depths of the Grand Canyon to the fragility of a snowflake, from the immense diversity of life on this earth to the basic structure of DNA, the incredible complexity of the human body, and to the beauty of music and of color and a sunset. Creation screams truth about God, even though we cannot presently see him visually. So don't buy into theories that supposedly explain life without God. Don't allow scientific theories that are sometimes dishonest or biased in their evaluation of evidence to somehow sow doubt into your soul. Just use your common sense and ask, what seems more reasonable? That the watch just kind of popped into existence on its own or that an intelligent and very powerful creator is behind it? What has a greater body of evidence to support its claims? The creation and all of its diversity and complexity and beauty happened just accidentally? Or that all of this is the handiwork of a wise and powerful and immensely creative and intelligent creator? A creator who, for good reason, by the way, happens to be visually unseen just for a time. So the glories of God are on clear display in the pages of Scripture In the wonder of creation, both of these provide incredible manifestations of his glory. But here's one final category that is also perhaps most compelling in the testimony of changed lives. Testimony of changed lives. God is is on display, not just in Scripture and in creation, but in the life of everybody who believes in him. God's active work in this world is presently seen, not through pillars of fire or through voices from heaven or from visible appearances in the sky. His active work is most clearly seen right here. And right here, in the human heart, as lives are touched, as people are changed from his impact, as individuals find hope and comfort in the promises of God, and as God blesses his people and nurtures them through the presence of the Holy Spirit, he helps them conform more into the likeness of his son, Jesus. Do you want to see evidence of God? Then just look at the glorious work that he's doing in the lives of people. And you will often see things that defy explanation. And they point clearly, to the workings of an unseen God. And so although God is presently visually unseen himself, he provides ample displays of his glory for all to see. In the pages of Scripture, in the wonders of creation, in the testimony of changed lives, these are the visible glories of the unseen God. And of course, though, someday God will no longer be hidden. There will be a time when he will be fully revealed and there will be no longer any doubters of his existence. And all people will see Jesus Christ as he had pictured here in this passage from Romans chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs were of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Someday, we will all see Jesus like that. In the meantime, we wait patiently with faith. Faith that confidently believes in things not yet seen, but faith that is not without evidence. 
the manifold, visible manifestations of God's glory. And we wait patiently with a heart that yearns and longs for the day that Jesus appears in this way to come quickly. That we might all then relish and delight in the incredible joy of seeing God visually in all of His glory. That day is coming when He might be forever praised in the full revelation of His indescribable splendor for all time. We wait with faith, patiently, confidently, in the hope that is before us to His glory.